From Walt Disney World in Epcot to Knott's Berry Farm, from World's Fairs to a whiskey trail in Scotland, Bob Rogers and his team at BRC Imagination Arts have been creating world-class attractions for fans and brands for four decades. I'm Robert Niles from ThemeParkInsider.com. To celebrate the 40th anniversary of BRC Imagination Arts, IAPA Hall of Famer Bob Rogers joined me on Building the World's Best Theme Parks to talk about his start in the attractions business and what's next in the themed entertainment industry. Well, BRC was really, to a certain extent, born out of failure. I wanted to be uh, Steven Spielberg. And unfortunately for me, that to this day, that, that, uh, that job is taken. Uh, that job is occupied. And uh, I, I drifted sideways into doing some of the early film development work for uh, Epcot before it opened. And I discovered that I was really pretty darn good at that. I understood something about, instinctively understood something about the way that people flow through spaces. And uh, so uh, we, uh, uh, my uh, working partner at that time and I, Rick Harper, uh, we were assigned a chance to uh, uh, go to France and do the Impressions de France film, which... uh, and there are several things about Epcot that are emblematic about BRC, and the following is one of them. There was no reason that Marty Sklar and John Hench and Randy Bright, all the leaders at WDI at that time, should have had any faith in Rick or I. Up to that point, the most expensive film that the, he and I had ever done together was a movie that we did for $50,000. And suddenly, WDI was putting he and I on a plane to go to a continent neither of us had been to, to produce a film in a country neither of us had been to, where they speak a language neither of us spoke, and use a currency neither of us was familiar with, and had a whole tradition of how film crews work that we just didn't have a clue about. Uh, and they, oh, by the way, trusted us about with $2.7 million. And they put us all over there at a time when WDI was swamped and didn't have the bandwidth to look after us. So we were pretty much completely on our own. Perfect. In fact, the the goofy way that the accounting reporting worked in those days within Disney, nobody at WDI saw any accounting of anything we'd spent until about a year after we'd spent it. So so this is kind of uh, what you might call the John Wayne School of Swimming. You take someone that you think has some talent and you throw them in the deep end and see what they can do. And we, we sort of have been doing that not only with some of the people we hire ever since, but also doing it to ourselves, plunging ourselves into things that, we, that challenge us, that we're, that we're not certain we can do, so that we're doing new material. So that sort of has been part of our our ongoing legacy. Uh, now, at the time that we formed BRC, uh, the main objective was, uh, let's see if we can't pay the rent another couple of months <laughs> and uh, see what happens. Uh, and we came to our first big decision point about a year after we formed the company. 
because we thought originally, or I did, it was me, it was only me, uh, thought, I'll do this for a year, we'll do the things for uh, Epcot that we're doing as a company. Uh, we did all the shows for the General Motors uh, post-show. And then we'll fold this company and we'll just go back, I'll just go back to being a freelance writer. We got to the end of that period and I looked at the money in the bank and I said, wow, this is great. I've got enough money that I can, I don't have to work at all for the next three years. I can just live very frugally on this money and try to write my great screenplay. Or I can stay in business, keep paying a couple of employees, try to pitch some other things, and the money will last about nine or ten months. Three years or nine or ten months? Big dare. What do you do? Well, obviously you know what we chose. We chose, and by the way, we had no prospects for a next project at that point. Uh, the other thing about Epcot that put the stamp on us, and I was thinking about this when I was preparing for your visit today. Uh, Tony Baxter once said about uh, that, that about Disney World. He said, "The Magic Kingdom is fantasy made real, whereas Epcot is reality made fantastic." And the latter was more true when Epcot first opened. It's becoming, it's drifting more into a. Uh, a vehicle for uh, Disney IPs now. But there still is that idea that you can take reality, you can take fact-based material uh, and, and make it fantastic. And that inspiration has been one of the things behind BRC and kind of part of our DNA ever since. And over the last 40 years, I mean, what is it that you've been wanting to accomplish with BRC besides just, you know, making the payroll. And, you know, maybe how has that changed over time? Well, it started with let's just let's just pay the rent, but but along the way you say to yourself, why are we here if we're not trying to do great work? Mm -hmm. Uh what is it why would why would we want to be in this business if we want didn't want to do something great, something that really moved people, touched people? and really made a, a real measurable difference in the world. Uh, certainly the original uh, goals of Epcot uh, contained all of that. Uh, and we've sort of just carried that on within ourselves. Uh, so that's carried us forward. That's, that's kind of what we had in mind is let's, let's have a business. Let's do good, solid business. Let's not mess that part up. Uh, but at the same time, let's let's do something great. Let's do some great work. What's the framework you use to define what great work is? Well, certainly suitability for a purpose. But I don't know if you you saw on your way in here. It's on the it's on the wall, big, where all of our people have to go past it a couple of times a day. And I'll read it. I'll read it to you. It's sort of a a dedication. Uh, uh, statement of what BRC is about. It says, with every experience we create and in every heart that we touch, we strive to leave the world a better place by awakening the best in people. Well, there, there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, 
one, of course, is the notion that there is, there is good and bad in all of us. That's what Abraham Lincoln was referring to when he talked about the, the better nature, angels of our nature, which implies that there are some not so good ones in there as well. And uh, that, the, the idea that you would find the best in people and bring that out in all of them uh, and, and make sure that you're leaving the world a measurably better place with every th single thing you do, uh, there's a lot to be said about that. It means that you're not going to be doing the empty-headed, you know, razzle-dazzle entertainment that leaves people momentarily distracted and maybe momentarily pleased. You want to give them something that is uh, not preaching to them, but something that something that, that stays with them, that they keep thinking about, and that somehow makes things better. Obviously, if you want to affect people outside of your organization, an audience, I would think that you've, you've got to kind of start within the organization with the people that you choose to bring in here and how you develop them and how they grow in the projects that they, they develop for your audience. As a manager, tell me a little bit about your philosophy about you know, recruiting and developing the talent that you work with here at BRC. Well, you want to you want to find people who who come in with some level of skill, but have the potential to be more than just a craftsman. You certainly expect them to be good craftsmen, but you also want them to be good storytellers and good stewards of whatever material you're giving them. If you're placing in their hands a great brand such as Coca-Cola or a great story such as the story of Abraham Lincoln uh, or sometimes a combination of both at once such as a lot of the work that we do with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or uh, Grand Ole Opry, some of the talents and some of the, uh, the in effect, the, the personal brands of some of all that are, are just, you have to be true to those brands. You have to be uh, a good steward of them. And so you, you try to choose people that have some great technical skill, give them the, a good orientation, a good project to work with, and then kind of loosen up and see what they can do with it. Uh, we, uh, when we started, uh, our organizational chart looked like a bicycle wheel with every line of communication running from the front back to me. I made every decision. Well, that we were starting and we were smaller. As we get bigger, uh, we've delegated a tremendous amount of that and, uh, and, and, and been much, much better for it. We've got some great uh, leaders and managers with BRC that are really doing a great job here. And, and so we're able to, and we try to extend that all the way down as, as far as we possibly can to see what everybody can do because everybody's got something to contribute. They don't necessarily arrive knowing how to do it, but, but with the right opportunities they get, uh, they, they can do great things. Tell me about the project that most changed BRC. I don't think you'll like the answer, but I think that, that the right answer is every single project changes us. We, we, each project that we go through leaves us slightly different. And if there was one project that did the biggest change, 
then maybe we would still be, like some people are, still remaking that project over and over again, forcing every new project into the mold that made that, that great one. Uh, so we kind of want and allow each new project to challenge us and to take us in a new direction, to find a new way of doing it that's going to be uh, fantastic. That's what's led us into uh, many, many new worlds. The Whiskey Trail that I was talking about earlier is, uh, is an example. You've got to take each distillery on that whiskey tour, and you've got to give them, because they're all under the ownership of the same company, Diageo and Johnny Walker, but they each have to be a distinctly, distinctly different whiskey and a distinctly different experience that yet still has a family look to them. If they aren't all different, there's no reason to go to more than one or two. But, yeah, but so each has to speak with its own voice, have its own story, and yet seem to be part of part of the group. So as we do more of them, it becomes a more interesting challenge. How do we make this one uh, give this one a unique voice from the others? And so, in that respect, you, you don't want to repeat yourself. You want each project to speak to you. And we've we've had some we've had some tremendous variety in what we've done. We've we've been able to sit with the tribal elders of the Kwakwakwawa speaking people in British Columbia and listen to their stories and their cosmologies and learn from them in order to portray their culture. When we were uh, working on a diorama about what it felt like to stand on the moon, we were sitting across the table from Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and John Young and Gene Cernan, people that had actually stood on the moon. Uh, and when we were doing the projects just recently for Johnny Walker, we're sitting learning about whiskey tasting from the head uh, uh, taster, in effect, the, the head uh, master blender of all of Johnny Walker, the one that decides who else can be a master blender, uh, Jim, a guy by the name of Jim Beveridge, and there's no higher there's no higher authority, you know. So, uh, uh, with those kinds of experiences comes not only that sense of wanting to be responsible stewards for what they, they, they care about so much, wanting to also get the facts correctly, be a responsible steward for the, uh, uh, the truth involved, but yet at the same time wanting to make sure we rise to the occasion and make it truly, as uh, Tony Baxter would have said, reality made fantastic. When you have all those wonderful experiences with the, these original sources, how do you go about finding the story beats there that you're going to use to essentially make your audience, your visitors, feel like they're having that same type of experience with the original sources that you've gotten to enjoy? Ah, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. Well, here's what, first of all, a lot of people in our business, our competitors, believe that what you do is you come up with a great story that's original that you thought of and you impose it on the audience and on the subject. Uh, we don't do that at all. Uh, we, in fact, every time we look back on a project we've worked on 
and say, wow, that really turned out great. What do you know? You take a second look and you notice that there is a great client who took that journey with you. So the first place, we, we don't believe we're imposing or selling a story to the client, but rather helping them find the story. And now if you take that idea to the next level, and this is what's really hard for a lot of people to do, you look into the hearts of your audience and you look for the things that they associate with this subject or that they might be thinking about depending on what they're doing today. And we in this business know a tremendous amount about our audiences. Uh, Steven Spielberg doesn't know what his audience was doing today. But we know a lot about it. We know that they either chose to go to this theme park or they didn't. They, we know that if they're on a, uh, uh, if they've gone to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we know that at least somebody in that, in that family or that group is really interested in something about rock music. Uh, we know a lot about them. So we, what are their associations? What are they thinking today? What are they doing today? And we'll look at what's in their heart. And while we're doing that, we're looking at the subject. We're looking at all of the things in the subject, and we're looking for something that's in both of those places. If you think about uh, a Venn diagram with a very small overlap, what's that overlap? One circle is the emotional world of the audience today, and the other circle is the emotional world of the subject. Where What's common to both? You find that and make that your story. That becomes your story. And I can give you a, a good example of this. Uh, we were asked by the Milwaukee Brewers to do uh, a presentation about Bud Selig, who was the commissioner of baseball and was one of the founders of the Milwaukee Brewers uh, and a big hero to them. And they wanted, when on his retirement, they wanted to give him a sort of a, a little shrine, and they, we wanted, they wanted us to tell his story. Well, uh, it's kind of hard for the audience to relate and have a lot of sympathy and buy-in with a, with a billionaire that got rich creating, a, in effect, a ballpark that was built by you know, uh, the public money and some other things. Uh, so you know, we're looking for that tie-in, and we finally found it. In Bud Selig's story, he got interested in baseball when his mom would take him to games. Now, practically everybody in that ballpark got interested in baseball because they were taken to games by a parent. And many of them at that stadium today are a combination of a parent and a child, a parent trying to endow in that child a love of baseball the same way that their parent endowed that love of baseball. Suddenly you've got to, all of a sudden, if when we're, we start using that as the beginning and ending story thread to the story of, uh, of, of Bud Selig, all of a sudden you've got something that is going to uh, appeal to the heart of the audience because all of a sudden I've got something in common with uh, this guy is like me, I'm like this guy, and I... I and I feel connected with him. So that's one uh, example. Uh, another example that some of your uh, 
listeners may be uh, familiar with is Mystery Lodge at Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, Mystery Lodge, uh, there was a uh, there was a show at the '86 World's Fair called Spirit Lodge, which Terry Van Gorder wanted to move to uh, uh, to Knott's Berry Farm. But that story was appropriate for the World's Fair about transportation. It was about transportation. So we thought, what should the story be now that we're in ghost town rather than a World's Fair about the future of transportation? And we looked at the context, and we looked at the audience, and we spent time with that audience. We went down to Knott's. We stood in line for rides we did not intend to ride. We struck up conversations with people. We had lunch at, I think it's called the Fireman's Brigade, which is a family-type seating, which is a picnic benches where you combine families, and we just struck up conversation. Hi, what you doing today? Uh, are, you, are you with your grandma? Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, and what, we noticed that more than a Disney park, more than a lot more than, say, Six Flags or even Universal, there tended to be multi-generational audiences often three generations, and occasionally four, where great-grandma is being pushed in the, in the wheelchair right next to great-granddaughter being pushed in the stroller. And we thought about what they were doing that day and crafted a story about, about families and about connection between generations. Uh, and as you know, the... Uh, in Mystery Lodge, the uh, the storyteller comes out and says that he's just had a an encounter with the Owl of Death, and the Owl of Death called his name, and and some of his people think that that means his time to die has come. But that's just silly, silly rumors and silly, silly, uh, you know, uh, old stories. But but even so, it got me thinking about back over my life and what was important in life. And its thoughts carry him back to the time when he was in his grandmother's lap listening to her tell stories of his people and the ways of his people. And then he kind of goes through his whole life, concluding in the end that what was most meaningful about his life was the time that he spent with the people he loved. Now that's exactly what everybody in the audience is doing today. You just totally validated their day. And oh, by the way, that's another thing to think deeply about. This is a story in a theme park about the real death. This isn't the cartoon death of the Haunted Mansion or Adventureland or one of those. This is about the real death. This is about facing our own mortality. And that's really unique within theme parks. And I don't know why all of us don't do more of this. Here's something for your readers to think about. If I go back 100 years, uh, we would have had the church or the temple or the synagogue. We would have had that as being a place where we would come together and synchronize our values, see what, what values we had in common with everybody. Uh, we don't quite, aren't being held together with that quite the same. Theme parks and 
a great museum and things like that, I've become kind of the last mass media on earth. If I go back to when I was a child, 40% uh, of America got their, all of their news from one person, Walter Cronkite. 40%. Uh, there were only three main networks. Uh, we tended to have, and we tended to separate editorial from, from news. Uh, as a result, we tended back at that time to have a set of values where we were much closer to one another and understood each other uh, much better. Today, everything is niche. You know, everything is uh, about appealing to that small, narrow audience. So it's, it's dividing us. It divides us in, in terms of what we think is true. It divides us in terms of what we think is our values are, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we've just recently had some things in the news about the Facebook alg algorithms that deliberately bring out the worst in people and, and emphasize the worst in people. Bane of my existence. What is the role uh, that theme parks, the constructive role that theme parks could be, play since they're one of the last mass medias that get practically everybody what could they be doing, not in a preachy way, not in a political way, but just in a basic human way to bring us together rather than drive us apart? What can they do to bring us together? Or just to make us notice that we're together. Absolutely. I mean, because when you're at the park, you are there with people from a variety of backgrounds that you might not consciously choose to associate with, but this third thing, this theme park, has brought you together. And if you can just notice that I have something, anything, this one thing in common with the other, yeah. where does that start you? What path does that lead you down? The key word there is start. Yes. You don't need to take them all the way down the path. That would be maybe too specific, it would get too political. But you need to start them on the basic idea. The basic idea of Mystery Lodge is that when you get to the end of your life, what you're going to treasure most is the time you spent with the people you love. And, and that's a, what a great takeaway. Also, the honoring of one generation, honoring the, and respecting and uh, uh, appreciating the, uh, the elders. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it, it hit people in the heart. It still does to the extent it's been closed for about the last year and a half due to a, uh, a technical problem, uh, and COVID didn't help. Uh, but uh, oh, but what's interesting is people would come out with tears in their eyes. What's interesting is that show was closed not because the story became irrelevant. It's because the tech, you, the projection tech you were using when you built this, nobody supplies parts for that anymore. Uh, you think yes. of a mat. Uh, you know, Impressions to France. Disney wants to bring in more IP, but they had to keep it in there in the evenings because people demanded it. If you take this approach, stories last a very long time. And investing in these stories becomes a very good investment because you're not having to change it out every year or two because there's a flashy new character or IP that someone wants to talk about and yours is irrelevant now. There's a balance to all of that. And by the way, that's 
There's a Thoreau quote on the in the lobby that you walked past. You may not have noticed it. It's uh, it's on the wall down there also. It says, uh, uh, "Do not tell me what is new. Tell me what is never old." Yeah. And there's a lot to be said for that. We will design our projects with a with a three-part strategy for obsolescence, and we will do take about a third of a project and say a third of a pro the project is going to be a classic, something that will never go out of date or at least last a very, very long time. In that part of what we're doing, we can invest a lot of automation and a lot of, uh, 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 a lot of expense to get it, get it right to the point where it really has the emotional impact. There will be a second group that we might call seasonals, something that is designed to be replaced or, or refreshed once every one to four years, something like that. Uh, for that, then you use more video-based content, more uh, uh, things that can be changed relatively quickly in order to give the thing a new face. And then there's a third group which would be the, uh, the instant change. That's live performance. Live performance, you know, if somebody, uh, if you need something, some detail changed because of some news event, uh, let's not talk about, you know, airplane crashes or something, because there just was one and everybody's sensitive. You go and you pull the guide aside and you say, uh, hey, listen, we need to do this, this, and this. Instantly, you are, you, you have a slightly different show so that you can do those three because you know you need in order to promote you need something you need refreshment uh in order to cause there to be uh return business but that doesn't mean that everything has to be torn out every five or ten years mystery lodge ran uh before it it, it broke uh it ran 25 years the the france film is now in its i think 37th or 38th year uh, without the only change they've made to that in that time is that they digitized it. But they haven't changed a frame, they haven't changed a bit of music or narration or anything. Let's talk about you know, how you go out and you get work. Because you're not in the grocery business. It's not like people have to come on down to BRC and get their coffee and their sandwich meat once a week. Um, this is a business that's very discretionary. I mean, so how do you go to a client and essentially create the demand for a really unique product that they might not have thought that they needed? We're not so much trying to sell people mm -hmm. as we are trying to help people. Our project cycle seems to start when somebody calls us out of the blue. Hey, you don't know me, but I'm with so-and-so, and I've just been through the uh, Johnny Walker Princess Street project. You guys did that? And I've, I've called up the people that, that you know, you worked for, and I thought, I think you, you, you must be paying them as your press agent because they just, they just said you were the greatest thing ever. So I looked on your website and I 
found some other clients that you've worked with and I called them and the same thing is true. The recommendations I'm getting from your other clients is just, it's all positive through the roof. Uh, I've got a, I've got a project I want to do that is blah, 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 blah. And I just, I, I'm looking at some of the other options and I, I really want this to be special. I want this to be different. So in other words, what's happening here is we're getting the outliers. We're getting the people for whom good enough isn't. And we're getting the people that want to do something that's just a cut above, a cut out there. Uh, and now we've still got to compete for it. Sure. All this does is get you on the list. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, they find us. And they're finding us because of the reputation. Boy, I tell you, when we were first starting out 40 years ago, we'd finished the stuff for Epcot and we had no prospects and had nine months to get something going <laughs> quick. How did you get those first first clients after Epcot? Pure oh. dumbass luck. I don't know. Uh, because we had, we, we'd done, essentially we'd done one project which was the, uh, as a company, which was the post shows for the original General Motors uh, pavilion that included Bird and the Robot and some other things that every once in a while somebody still remembers from way back then. And uh, we, we, it was all one project, the post show, and we packaged them up and tried to make it look like a whole bunch of projects because we had no portfolio at that point. Uh, but we managed to sell one little project and then, and then we hit the jackpot with the 1986 World's Fair. We did three pavilions. Then they wound up in the top three, uh, rate highly rated. I mean, they wound up in the top. They were three of the top five in every single rating uh, that we had. The uh, Spirit Lodge had a uh, a line about three and a half hours long. Uh, Rainbow War was nominated for an Oscar, which just never happens mm -hmm. in our business. Uh, uh, and uh, and we thought, wow, this is great. Look, at, we've got it made now. Three of the top, we're, we're going to be selling like crazy. And so we established a sales office at the World's Fair. We escorted people around and we expected we'd do great. We went one full year, starting with the opening of Expo. Went one full year, didn't sell anything had all kinds of people ask for proposals, all kinds of things. We thought, and boy, there was a, you think you got it made and you don't got it made. Mm -hmm. And we hung out, we had, at that point we had 12 employees and we kept all 12 employees employed and we kept them at their full salary. Uh, and eventually, finally, something broke and we sold a couple of things and we thought, okay, well, looks like we'll make payroll yet again. That's one of the things I'm proudest of in the 40 years is over a thousand payrolls without a screw up. That's Not crazy. once in four in a thousand payrolls did we tell people, "Well, here are your checks, but don't cash them till next week." We never. Not once did we do that. I imagine that's been uh, particularly tough over the past year and a half, too. We've been we've been very lucky. We've been very lucky. We were in the middle of some projects, and the COVID hit. Uh, us at at a decent time. We had stuff that we could largely do by sending people home. 
Uh, we have a very big office, so the few that did occasionally have to come in, uh, you know, six people in 48,000 square feet. You know, that was, they, was, they, they had. So that's, a, that's a better ratio than my house, um, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, much, uh, yeah, social distancing, no problem. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was, uh, we were very, we were very lucky with that in COVID. I won't say, won't say we weren't. We've been lucky, we've been lucky a lot of, for a lot of points in our lives. Uh, very, very grateful to be, have had the people come work with us that did. Very lucky to have the clients choose us that did. Uh, can't would love to think it was all just sheer talent, but no, it's a it's it's that village we talk about. The business has expanded globally. We're you're talking about uh, things you've got going in Scotland and Europe. Um, with all of this global growth going on, why are you guys still headquartered here in California? Well, that's an interesting question. I I, I was born in Los Angeles, uh, grew up in Southern California. So it seems natural to me. I think, uh, I think the uh, the weather is uh, certainly one good uh, good factor, and a lot of a lot of the talent uh, that we use is some of the same talent that that you that works in uh, Hollywood mm -hmm. and uh, in uh, in television, in fashion, in uh, interior design. There's a there's a this is kind of a, a headquarters for talent. The Themed Entertainment Association is here. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that uh, some media people, like for example, uh, Theme Park Insider, I think, <laughs> is headquartered here. So you might you might ask him uh, why he's here. Same thing, LA native. It's my home. But that's I mean that's become an issue because you've got uh, things like um, you know Imagineering trying to move a bunch of people to Florida right now. Um, does that create an opportunity for you if some of them decide, no, I think I'll stay here? Or does that create a challenge if some of them say, no, I'll stay here and I'll start my own shop to go compete with BRC and everybody else out there? For as long as we've been in business, Disney, is, Disney Imagineering is like a dragon, breathing in and breathing out. They get ready to do a big project. For example, when we were founded, uh, we were part of the breath that the dragon took in as the Imagineering was hit with a tsunami of work when they tried to do build Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland both at the same time. They simply ran out of people. They went from 350 or 400 people, they went to over 3,000. And then of course it, all that stuff started to open and the dragon breathes out. And out we came. <laughs> And we, uh, we hung up our signal, and the first thing we did was for General Motors for Epcot. Uh, but ever since then, Disney's been doing that. They breathe in, they breathe out. So constantly onto the market, you're getting these people thrown onto the market who have been credentialed by the mouse. Now, it could very well be that all they were doing was designing menu graphics or routing air conditioning ducts but they are now a former Disney Imagineer. And they hang up their shingle and, you know, they're in competition with us and they look good on paper. Uh, and so uh, you can't begrudge them that. Everybody, everybody should have an ability to, 
pursue a dream. And some of them may wind up working with us. And some of them that have been with us and have gone to Disney may, may get back. Uh, hard to say on that. But that's that's been going on a long time. That's uh, The other thing that we have definitely discovered is that the talent is not limited to Southern California. When we go elsewhere in the world to create a show, and, and we 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 just we never seem to get a, a a client in our same time zone, let alone in our town. But uh, we're almost always doing things away from home. And when you look in the local marketplace, you can almost always find really really great talent. Some of them have the craftsmanship skills, but they've never done this particular stuff. You need to give them the right leadership. And some of them are every, have every bit of knowledge you'd want them to have, but they've got also local knowledge. They know where to get things. They know, for example, that uh, uh, you don't build things in Italy or France with, uh, with plywood. That's a, that's, that's a really expensive unknown material. <laughs> you know, they know how to do things that, are, that make sense in the local in the local supply chain and the local and also then when they when after the thing has been built they they they're in the area in case you need a a little bit of a warranty adjustment etc cetera, etc cetera. we've had great luck looking for local talent wherever it is that that we go uh the team that we built with largely uh uk talent in uh for the johnny walker princess street uh, just an amazing group of highly talented people uh, and so that's one of the things that we've have learned over the years. So yeah, we might be headquartered here in Southern California, but but there's talent uh, and great people everywhere. And the uh, the pandemic has accelerated everybody's comfort using electronic communications uh, and uh, given them a chance to uh, force them to practice it, become very facile with it. It's going to be interesting to see how that changes every, how everybody approaches this business going forward. I mean, it's interesting because, of, you know, for people who are not in the business might not recognize just how project-based it is. And the people that you are working with on one project, you might not see again for a while. You might see them on the next project. That... Uh, it's very important in this business, and it seems to me as someone who's been covering it, I can't speak for you, but I'm going to ask you to speak to this in a second here, to talk about the importance of cultivating and maintaining relationships, even with people that an outsider might consider a competitor. Oh, sure. There was an old character actor from the 30s and 40s named Jimmy Durante. Who once famously gave a young person some advice? He said, "Be nice to everybody you meet on the way up, because you'll see them all again on the way down." <laughs> and uh, it's really true that the the everybody in this business, uh, it's not a rational choice to be in this business. The people who are in this business do this because they have to. They love it. They, they, they gravitate toward it. 
They could all make so much more money selling life insurance or, or, or doing so many other things. Why are they doing this? Because there's something about it that they identify with and that they just plain love. So as a result, if they, if they are at this moment between successes, uh, just keep in mind, they love this business. They're going to find success. You're going to see them again. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's almost like, like this, this club of all these people that you've been through all this, this stuff with. Mm -hmm. They work for you on this one. They're competing with you on that one. It's all okay. It's all good. And, uh, and uh, I know that some of the things that I've done through the Themed Entertainment Association caused me to be on committees and other things with some of uh, our arch rivals. And it is astounding how wonderful they are, uh, how smart, how clever, how constructive uh, when we come together to do something together. And I've come to, uh, to uh, you know, you come to really admire and, and deeply respect them. And yeah, we're going to compete, but you know, it's, it's like, I guess professional sports is like this, where one, one year you're a Laker and the next year you're a Celtic. And when you come back to Staples Center to play the Lakers, yeah, we're going to beat you. We're going to we're going to try to beat you, but at the same time, we're 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 we respect each other and we're friends. Let's start to look forward a little bit here. What does this industry need to get right over the next few years that maybe it hasn't in the past? Well, we've got some challenges, that's for sure, and we've got some opportunities. Probably the biggest opportunity is the one we spoke of earlier is to, to think about what can this whole industry do to bring people together? Mm -hmm. In the stories we tell, how do we cause people, as we say, to uh, find in them, find the, awaken the best in themselves? Mm -hmm. How can we do more of that? Uh, that's probably the biggest challenge I would lay down to everybody in the industry mm -hmm. uh, as to how we can do that, because we've got to figure that out Otherwise, we're all going to hell in the handbasket together. Uh, as one NASA guy once said uh, back in the 60s, uh, it's none of my business, but your end of our canoe is sinking. <laughs> uh, so that's a, that's, a, that's, that's a big challenge. And then we got all kinds of other little ones which we are solving. Uh, an example would be uh, sustainability. There are so many things we can do to make for sustainability, not only from the point of view of the uh, environment, but also economically, to make sure that we're not building things that can't, can't wash their own face, can't fund themselves, uh, that don't make economic sense. Just because I got this great artistic vision doesn't mean we should build the damn thing. Uh, how's it going to pay for itself? How are we going to maintain it? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, an example on sustainability on Johnny Walker Princess Street. Uh, we are going to give out, a, do a lot of whiskey tasting there. And there are a couple of fantastic bars. And we figured out very quickly that we were going to be needing to serve somewhere between 60,000 and 80,000 bottles of whiskey every year. That's a lot of glass. That's a lot of weight 
that you have to ship to the site in addition to the whiskey. And then that's a lot of waste that you need to haul away from there. So we developed uh, some custom uh, uh, canisters. They're stainless steel kegs uh, or tanks. They hold about uh, uh, 19 or 20 liters each. And as a result, and we had to go to the bottling line and build a special loading thing for this, but then they go up right to the... Uh, right to the bars in, in question. And as a result, we're not, we're not throwing away mountains and mountains of glass every day. Uh, that's just one small example of how we all need to be constantly rethinking what it is that we're doing in order to be, because there's always one more thing you can do. There's always something more that you can do. Um, another area where we just keep getting better uh, would be on accessibility. Working in Scotland, we ran into uh, a group, a wonderful group called Ewan's Guide. Uh, and they helped to advise us on uh, uh, handicap accessibility, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we took it, we've taken Johnny Walker Princess Street with their help. We've taken it to the next level. We've taken it to the next level. Do you even know what? A, uh, a legitimate changing toilet is just what what uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go into that because I'm not the expert in this, but what we what we learned from them is the fact that you have handicap accessible facilities for many people with handicaps doesn't tell them what they really need to know. You need to be far more specific about exactly what you mean, and your people have to be far more educated as to how to how to help people through etc cetera, etc cetera. and and that, that's something that we got a lot better on on this and I, I, I'm sure that there are things we can do more uh, to, to get ever better with that uh, we always were a leader in that if if, uh, if we did a theater where the code required two hand two wheelchair spots we would provide four and if it didn't matter where they were in the theater, we would try to put our wheelchair spots in the best row or the best location in the theater, not, you know, the front right-hand corner or something. Uh, uh, so, but, but, but we discovered we, we had a lot further to go, and we're going to get better at that. Um, the uh, inclusion, being diverse, Appealing to diverse audiences and having diverse people on our own staff, that's something else that our industry can get a lot better at. Uh, we are just now coming out of uh, the shadow of the hiring prejudices of our fathers and grandfathers. If you look at some of the people who've been leading this industry over the last 10 years, who are now many of them approaching retirement age, they are products of a hiring prejudice from when they were kids where it was, you know, they, everybody hired white males. So big surprise that all the senior leaders for the last 10 years are for the most part white males. We're starting to come out from under that shadow now and we need to continue that and we need to uh, make sure that our, our, our staffs look like our audiences. And, and, and we're getting better at it, 
and we're not as where uh, as Lou Holtz once said, we're not where we uh, ought to be. We're not where we want to be, but we're also not where we're going to be. I remember maybe it was the last time we were at IAPA in Orlando. Uh, the picture I I posted to social media that blew up was it was uh, just as before the show floor opened. I took a picture of the line for the restrooms. And the line for the men's room was out the door and down the hall, and women were walking right into the empty women's restroom, which is typically the opposite of what you see in sports stadiums, where it's the line for the women's are. But at IAPA, it was the line was the men because there weren't nearly as many women there. And that photo blew up with people who were just saying, that shows you the challenge that we've got in this industry right now. I'll tell you something else that is not is becoming a problem that we all need to do some serious thinking about, very serious thinking about, and that's ticket prices. Yeah. Because uh, the I said earlier that theme parks are the last mass media on earth, but what's starting to happen here is that ticket prices are starting to turn theme parks into something that is only for the uh, upper middle class and upper classes because we're just pricing everybody out. And it's a difficult it, it's a difficult triangulation of a problem because on the one hand, theme parks are running out of capacity. They open something and it's overwhelmed. And the only way you can control it maybe is with uh, you know, controlling the price. Maybe the price will cause there to be. Uh, we're we're seeing the phasing out slowly of uh, annual passes. Boy, that's a that's long, long, long overdue. Uh, the economics of annual passes have never made sense to me. Why would you allow people to come in for nothing? All they're going to do is put wear and tear on the equipment. They're going to they're you're not making that much money. You get the guess you get the. They've learned a long time ago to eat before and after they go. They've got all the Mickey Mouse crap that they're ever going to (laughs) need. So, you know, you just, why are you, are you putting the wear and tear on your people and your equipment to, uh, to do that? But at this point also, you, you you don't want to be doing the, the attendance control, the attendance balancing with pricing. You'd rather not be doing that because it's still getting too expensive. And, uh, we don't want it to become, we don't want theme parks to be some, something for just for the elite. It's like you were talking about earlier with the example of Bud Selig and baseball, in that, yes, you can load manage with pricing, but if that stops people from bringing their kids to the park, if that stops families from coming, you're no longer introducing a new generation to this, and at some point, that load management, you're just going to fall off the cliff because you didn't cultivate a new generation because it was too expensive to cultivate a new generation of fans. Well, also, you're going to build a uh, a sense of resentment. Yeah. A sense of resentment. Uh, so, you know, you, you some of the difficulties that we're having right now as a nation has to do with the fact that there is a uh, a group in the uh, an economic group that feels that that the 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 promise of the future is leaving them behind, that it's being stolen from them, or that it, they're being cut out of it, and uh, 
I would love to see theme parks play a unifying rather than dividing role in all of that. And pricing is part of that, part of that. And I don't know, I don't have the answer. I'm just, but you asked, what is it that would be uh, some things that we should, can and should get better at? Now, having said all those heavy things, the other thing we've got to do is we've got to make sure that we always remember that we're supposed to be in the fun business. It can be serious fun. It can be fantasy made real or it can be reality made fantastic. But it ought to be fun. There ought to be something that, that just appeals to, that makes you smile about everything we do. And bringing that kind of joy to people in the end has got to be one of the other things that we must always continue to get better at and never forget. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to thank you for your time here before we get into a final question. Uh, again, kind of keeping the gaze, the focus forward. What are you most looking forward to in BRC Imagination Arts future? Oh, that's an interesting question. You asked earlier, what's the project that changed us most? And I, I said every project. And uh, what am I looking forward to most? Whatever's next. Whatever's next. We, the, the stuff we've done is the stuff we've done. What's happening next right now? Right now, out there someplace, possibly listening to this podcast, there's some young person who's thinking, maybe I could work there. Maybe I've got the talent to uh, get a job there, or maybe I ought to take some courses to prepare for uh, a job there, or get, maybe, maybe they'd give me a chance to do something good. Or there's probably maybe some other person who's listening to this thinking, I wonder if I should put these guys on our bid list, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's some other that maybe is just going to call us up and say, hey, you got this, show up. Uh, that's, also, that's also happened a few times. And whatever that next thing is that's out there, that's the thing that, that's the thing that makes you want to get up in the morning and come to work to, because uh, there's just, it just, it'll probably be something cool. And maybe something that either we've never done before or something that we've done before, but now we can do it in a new and fantastic way and continually improve. Excellent. Well, again, congratulations on 40 years and uh, good luck in the next years to come. And uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. It's fun. You asked you asked some really, really good questions. You make me think. Well, we try and do that. Think a little, have fun a little, you know, try and keep it a mix. Congratulations again to Bob and the entire team at BRC Imagination Arts on 40 years of entertainment excellence. For more news from the world of themed entertainment, follow us online at themeparkinsider.com. For Building the World's Best Theme Parks, I'm Robert Niles, and thanks for listening. <laughs>